0: We've been we've been studying through the book of Galatians together for a while now, and we we left off last time in uh, in the middle of a paragraph, which I don't like to do. But this paragraph is so dense with important stuff that uh, where we pick up this morning is really going to be halfway through a um, uh, paragraph that that Paul's writing in Galatians chapter two. In the first part of that paragraph, what we studied last week, we looked especially at one word, justification, um, which was very important to Paul. Paul contends that we must be justified before God because... We'll never get to the point where God can accept us based on our righteousness. Righteousness is the requirement for eternal life. It is. The problem is none of us are righteous. So we need God to justify us. And when we looked at that word last week, the word means, justification means to change the view of something that has happened. We need God to change the way he views us, who we really are, what we have done, what we are doing, what we will do, will never be righteous enough for God to look at us and go, now I can accept you based on who you are and what you've done. And the thing that justifies us is the cross of Jesus Christ, his blood, what we will celebrate in communion this morning. The power of the blood of Christ is it justifies us. It is so powerful that when we believe, when we accept the gift that God did for us at the cross, that, that our sin went on him, was fully punished by the, the full wrath of God, when we believe and trust on that, God takes Jesus' righteousness And sort of slathers it all over us. Just covers us in it. To where now we we are judged based on His life and not ours. That's justification. It changes the way God sees us. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if what you depend upon for your position with God, is what He did at the cross on your behalf, then you have been justified. It's done already. It was was an act. It was a moment in time, first at the cross of Jesus Christ, and then the moment you believe that became effective for you when you received that gift. which is why Paul contends that it's kind of silly to live the Christian life this way. By, by sort of scoring myself and how I'm doing based on God's behavioral commands, beating myself up when I fail, locking myself in spiritual time out when I blow it, Convincing myself that there's no way God likes me today. Paul calls that, in the first part of this paragraph that we studied last week, rebuilding what I once destroyed. What Paul has destroyed is the idea that his behavior would ever get him to a point where God could say, now, Paul, now I accept you based on what you do and don't do. Paul says, I destroyed that idea. I'm not going to go back to living the way I used to live, convincing myself that God's, God's His love for me is based on my behavioral righteousness. But if that's not what the Christian life looks like, what does it look like? How should we think about it? I mean, is Paul saying that because if you're a believer, you've been justified now and forever by faith in Jesus Christ? Is Paul saying now sin no longer matters? May it never be is Paul saying avoiding sin is no longer really important. Of course not. But that's always the argument against grace. And it always has been. It's the argument Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. He dealt with it in the book of Romans and it's it's been with us ever since. In the 1500s during the Reformation, um, a guy, a guy named George the Bearded. I don't know what he looked like, except George the Bearded was Duke of Saxony. That's today. That's what is today Germany, part of it. And he was a critic of Martin Luther, especially because Martin Luther espoused this doctrine that he called justification by faith alone. And here's what. George the Bearded Duke of Saxony he said he said that's a great doctrine to die by but it's a lousy one for us to live with. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's very comforting to think that through faith alone like if I'm on my deathbed that's what I want to hear. Right? If you've trusted in Christ as your savior, you have nothing to worry about in the judgment that is to come. But if we just tell people that while they're living this life down here, people are going to go nuts. This place is going to be a mess. We can't actually teach that. You see, it can seem like legalism is a lot safer than grace. You see, it can feel like We are either going to have, we tell people, we all know this, salvation is open to all those who believe, whosoever believes in him will have eternal life, right? we memorized that years ago. But then it can seem like if that's all we teach, what we're going to have is license, People are going to treat the gospel like it's a license to sin whatever sins they want to sin. So we're either going to have license or we've got to sprinkle in, we've got to add some ideas that really how God feels about you really is still based on your behavior. Won't that be safer? Won't it be safer? To, to just to sprinkle in the importance that God's opinion of you depends on your behavior. Well, it seems to like Paul was saying, neither of those things are safe. But sin still matters. The question is why? If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you've received that gift and you are righteous in the eyes of God, does sin still matter? Yes. But why? Does sin still matter because how much of it you have will determine whether or not you go to heaven after you die? No. Does sin still matter because how much of it I have determines whether or not God loves me today? No. But sin still matters because I was created for a purpose. Do you know what that purpose is? I was created to glorify the one who created me. And sin still matters because the one who created me hates sin. Still. And sin still matters because it still damages and hurts and kills. And sin still matters because it is a lousy Savior. And make no mistake, in every sin we sin, we are asking something God hates to save us. When you lie, you're asking something God hates to save you from the discomfort that would come from telling the truth. If I am bored, I might ask something sinful to save me from my life that's not very exciting. If I'm feeling rejected, if I'm feeling uh, ostracized, if, if I'm feeling inadequate, I might ask sinful things to save me from those feelings. But guess what? Sin is a terrible savior. It will never deliver what it appears to offer. It can only bring more hurt, more pain, more separation, more relational damage, more death, because that's what sin does. So, how are we supposed to think about the Christian life if? If I'm completely justified before God based on my faith in Jesus Christ, what he did for me, it's his life, it's not mine. But yet sin still matters. If I'm not just supposed to hold the law up to my life, grade myself every day, beat myself up, convince myself what a terrible person I am every time I fail, and that God can't possibly love me, if I'm not supposed to do that, but sin still, how do we think about this thing? That's where we want to get to today. What should this justified life look like? We're just going to read three verses today. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, they will sound familiar to many of you. If they don't, that's okay. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, read this way. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. I want to start in verse 19. Uh, I'll show you that translation, and then I want to add, this is the, the New Living translation. I really think they capture well what Paul means When they render this verse this way, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. Paul was raised, and as a young man he was a Pharisee. At one point, he called himself like a Pharisee's Pharisee. Paul knew a thing or two about trying to be righteous based on obeying the behavioral commands of the Scriptures. Paul did that better than any of us could probably even imagine. But Paul came to understand the only thing that the law could do was show you you can't be behaviorally good enough for God to accept you based on your behavior. That's the only job the law can do, is to condemn. And you know, I think we all know this. Because I think for most of us, our Christian life has looked sort of like this. I want to be good some of the stuff I want to quit, and I try and I try and I try, and here I am again, and so I remind myself what a loser I am. I convince myself God would never want could never love a sad sack like me, and then maybe i'll Peek my head out of this gloomy depression and try again in a few days. And then, in that magical stretch of time, I'm doing pretty good according to those behavioral rules I want to keep. And those rules still don't breathe life and joy into my heart because somewhere I know I haven't reached any kind of finish line. There's some voice in my heart that says, hey, way to go for the last 48 hours, you loser. We all know where you're going to be two weeks from now. That's all the law can do. So Paul says, when he met Jesus, something changed. He says, I died to the law. And again, the, the, the New Living Translation explains that statement this way. I stopped trying to meet all the law's requirements. I stopped Trying to achieve righteousness through the impossible task of not sinning anymore and doing everything that the the Bible says I'm supposed to do. But pay special attention to the why. Why did Paul die to the law? Why did Paul stop trying to... Gain his righteousness through his behavior. Did Paul die to the law because, oh boy, sin no longer matters? No. Did did Paul die to the law because, hey, I've been justified by Jesus Christ. Now I can finally get around to sinning all those sins I've been meaning to try but was too scared to. Of course not. But look what he says. Paul says I died to the law why so that I might live to God Paul presents dying to the law as a prerequisite for living for God living to God Paul would say you haven't started living for God if you are still living by the law And many of us have spent decades believing living for the law is living for God. Because it can seem like that life I just described where I keep the rules in front of me, I try so hard to be good when I don't, when I fail, I condemn myself, I beat myself up two or three days from now, I'll peek out of this depression and I'll try again that means I'm living for God Paul says no you're not you're actually living for you here's why We are all looking for righteousness. Last week, I told you we're all looking for justification. We are. We're also all looking for righteousness. We all want to be okay. We want to be good enough. Those of us who believe in God want very badly to be good enough in His eyes. The most common answer I get when I ask someone if they're going to heaven is, I sure hope so. And I said, well, if you do, why, or I think so, might even be more common. The most common part is this, why? Well, I try really hard to, and then I get a variety of answers. I try really hard to be good. I'm a pretty good person. When Paul met Jesus Christ, he he saw what goodness looks like. And Paul knew, I can never get there. I can never get there. But we all want to be good enough. We want God to look at us and say, you're doing good. I accept you now. We want that. And when we are convinced that the way I get God to accept me is through my behavioral improvement, All those things I do to try to be good aren't actually for God. They're a way for me to get what I want, which is righteousness. If I want God to accept me because I want to go to heaven when I die someday, who are all my good works for? Me. Paul says, when I died to the law, when I stopped trying to get my righteousness in from this impossible task of being good enough that God would accept me, when I understood I've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, I bear his righteousness, something magical happened for Paul. He started to be able to live for God. Do you know the gospel? I am convinced. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing in the world that allows actual selflessness to happen. Because as long as I think, as long as I believe my good deeds and my good works get me somewhere, then, those, then I do all those things for me. But... When I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm justified by His blood. When I bear the, right, the white-hot righteousness of Christ before God, all of a sudden now, if I do something good for you, it doesn't get me anywhere with God that I'm not already. So now I can just do something that's actually good for someone else because it turns out God's going to accept me Anyway. Pastor Matt, what about eternal rewards? Take, just trust me on this one. Try to, to, to take on this lifestyle that Paul is talking about today and the rewards will take care of themselves, kids. If the righteousness I bear is the righteousness of Jesus, could I ever improve upon that? What could you do that would make you more righteous than Jesus? Nothing. So if you bear the righteousness of Him, you are set free to actually live for Him who died for me, like we used to sing. Instead of trying to climb the ladder of His acceptance. Paul says, I stopped trying to get Him to accept me based on me when I understood He already accepts me based on Him. we got to move on because verse 20 might be even more full than verse 19 was. Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Now, It it is important um, to remember that verse 20 goes with verse 19. Here's why it's important to remember. When Paul starts talking about his death, when Paul starts talking about that he has been crucified, Paul's not primarily talking about his immoral sins that were crucified with Christ. They were. That's true. But Paul, remember, is talking about he died to the law. What he's talking about is, I died to the idea that my behavior could get me to the place where God could finally be proud of me. My efforts at self-righteousness, that righteousness of my own that I wanted so bad, when I died to that idea, that is what was crucified, Paul says. All of my efforts at goodness were crucified with Christ. My sin and my self-righteousness all were crucified with Christ. And the result of that, as Paul says now, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now what, I mean what, Paul? What do you mean I no longer live? Aren't you alive while you write this letter? Of course he is. There's a paradox here and somewhere in this paradox is the Christian life. Because somehow it's no longer I who lives and yet here we are, the life which I now live. Which one is it? Do you no longer live or do you live? Sort of both. Here's what Paul says. I've been so crucified with Christ. I so identify my righteousness with the gift I get from Him that now The life that shows to the judge of the universe isn't even my life anymore. Like, what God sees when he looks at me to tell how I'm doing is Jesus' life. But the life I now it's not me and my righteousness that shows to the Father. It's the Son's life. And the result of that, Jesus is not, he was not just the substitute for you one time 2,000 years ago on the cross. He's the substitute for you every single day. Because in some ways, it, it is his life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's his life that shows to the Father. And the result of that comes next. And so now the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I think it is true. In fact, I know it is true. What many of us have been waiting a lifetime for in this Christianity thing is for God to finally zap me enough with enough of His power so that I could quit messing things up. Anybody? If you unpack that, the reason that's our focus is because we're waiting. Just like somebody who thinks, if uh, if I believe hard enough in Jesus Christ, I'll always be healthy or I'll be wealthy. He will help me get what I want. There's something else we want. It's righteousness. What we want is to come to Jesus, put our faith in Him, and we want Him to empower us to be so good that we can look at ourselves and say, see, I'm doing it. Daddy's proud of me based on how good I'm doing. But we never get there. And so we start to think maybe I'm not a believer at all. Maybe I'm not actually saved. When I'm reminded what a loser I am. Because what I, I want a righteousness of my own and we all do paul says he's saying he traded that struggle in for the cross of christ i now live by faith the life i now live i live by faith in the son of god Do you know what he's saying do you see what he's saying do you hear what he's saying it's not i believe hard enough and now i'm good like we're going to talk about growth And quitting sin. Those are important things. But do you know how close you're ever going to get in this life to the holiness and the righteousness that God would require to be pleased with you based on your holiness and righteousness? Do you know how close you could get? I'll give you a hint not close. Not close. Paul says, I gave that up. I've been crucified with Christ. It's his life that's showing toward God. And so now, this life I live in the flesh. And when Paul says flesh, he's not talking about a sin nature. He's just talking about his body. The life I now live in the flesh, I live believing what? That what he did for me is enough. Enough. I live, I live by faith that even though I've blown it again, he still loves me. I live by faith that his love is not waiting to see how well I do this week. His love was proved to me because he destroyed his son in my place, and that's enough. the life I live now. I live convinced it is his righteousness that God judges me by, that I cannot improve upon even a little. And I believe more and more that it's enough. What you have to decide, O oh Christian, is whose victory over sin do you want to depend on and stand upon? His or yours? And, and I mean that very, and this should be an intentional thought process for each of us. Am I waiting for my spiritual well-being till I get to the point where I have victory over sin and until I get there, I cannot feel good about me or my relationship with God? You're in for a long struggle. Or are you willing to live a life of faith that says, I believe somehow he actually did everything it takes for me to be loved and adored by my Father who's in heaven. Because you were offered victory over sin, but it's his. His. This chapter ends with Paul writing this. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. He's summarizing this whole paragraph sort of here when Paul says, any time I am working toward a righteousness of my own that's for my benefit, my self-esteem, the way I am viewed by others, my prestige, what I'm actually saying is I want to get to the place where I don't need God's grace today. I didn't need a bit of God's grace today. That was all me. Paul says, I'd just as well be saying there was no need for Jesus to die because I could have got, I can get there on my own. And we know that's not true. And listen, We we couldn't get there back then and we can't get there now. We couldn't, before we met Jesus, live a life that was enough for God to love us and accept us based on our goodness. We still can't. So why be good? If before God we bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ... Nothing we can do can make Jesus less righteous. Nothing we can do can make Jesus more righteous. It's really him who lives for me, that kind of righteousness. Why be good? First, because it's better than death. And sin always brings death. Listen, there are a couple of consequences if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the sin no longer has. It cannot send you to hell forever anymore. Hallelujah. It your sin cannot make God stop seeing Jesus when he looks at you. Hallelujah. The rest of the consequences of sin are still open for business. And they're terrible. Even as a justified believer in Jesus Christ, still my greatest need is God. And every time I ask sin to save me instead of God, I'm turning my back on my greatest need for some other little want that I've chosen to believe is somehow better than my greatest need, which is God. So now, I want to show you some illustrations that I stole from Lincoln Berean. Actually, I didn't steal it. I was offered them. Uh, When Brian Clark taught through Galatians years ago, Lincoln Berean developed these illustrations of what the Christian life should look like, like a diagram, a way for us, a framework for thinking. He handed these out at a conference, uh, told us all to use it, so I'm taking them up on that offer. Um, They're color-coded. Red means stop thinking like this. Green means go in this direction. The first one is, I believe, the most common wrong way to think about my sanctification process or my discipleship process or Paul says the life I now live as a justified person in the flesh. It works like this. Hey, previously in my life, I wanted to be okay with God. I believed in God. I knew I was going to stand before him someday. I wanted him to accept me. So I tried to be better than most people so that when I stood before God, he would accept me based on my goodness. I can that's, we call that works. My good outweighing my bad. At some point I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I came to understand that, that works won't work. I'm not good enough. So I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. He wiped my slate clean. And now I go right back to a life that looks a lot like a moral person's life before they met Jesus where I'm just trying really hard to be good enough so God will accept me based on how I'm doing. Stop it. Okay? There's my pastoral advice today. Stop it. The reason that's a bad model. It's because your line won't look like that. It will look more like this. I was trying to be good enough. Oh my goodness, I hear the gospel. I know what God wants and what righteousness looks like. I accept, I believe in Jesus Christ. And then I, I, I still have to keep trying for God to be able to accept me based on my behavior. And so what happens is I do good for a little while and I start to feel good. Maybe I get a little bit cocky and whammo, I fail again. I lock myself in that dungeon where I beat myself up and you're such a loser and God could never like you. And after a few days, I bring myself back out. Okay, I'm going to try again and here we go. And I'm trying and things aren't too bad. And Oh man, there it happened again. And in this model, you'll spend just as much time depressed, dejected, maybe even believing this Christianity thing doesn't even work. Because you're scoring your Christianity based on your works. It didn't work before. It won't work after. The only other option, I've said this several times over the last few weeks, that's condemnation. The only other options, only options when we think my uh, position before God, What I have to hold on to Him through my behavior The only options I have is condemnation. And what's the other one? Anybody remember? Condemnation and hypocrisy. The only other option is to convince myself my line is going up. I'm getting really close. And I do that by just defining the list of sins God hates differently than the way God defines the list of sins God hates. Okay, this illustration. This is how we think about our righteousness as a Christian. I used to think my righteousness depended upon how, what I did. And I was trying to climb that ladder so that God could finally be proud of me. I understood I can't do it. The law will just condemn me. I need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. My punishment went on Him. My sin went on Him when I believed in Him and I trusted in Him. Bammo, justification in an instant. And now, if I could change this slide, I would have this righteousness be about three hundred seventy-five thousand stories up in the sky, because it's not high enough. Because what I bear is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I didn't do anything to earn that righteousness. It was a gift. It's not mine what do you mean, Pastor Matt, your righteousness doesn't dip when you sin? My righteousness isn't mine. It's Jesus's. There's nothing you can do that will make Jesus less righteous. So it's always the same. And the life I now live is the life of faith, believing his righteousness stands in place of mine, and it is enough. Now, How should we think about this life I now live in the flesh? Because, I don't know if you've noticed, your behavior won't always match your positional righteousness with Jesus Christ. Our discipleship, our sanctification process, our Christian life, we think about this way. I want more and more my behavior to match who I really am. The one who saved me and gifted me with that righteousness, like I want to be like who I am in God's eyes. More and more and more. And again, this gap should be like infinitely big because we'll never get that close. You know, but the, the, the cards they handed out are only so big. It's a lifelong journey of somewhat closing that gap that will always exist about between what's true about my righteousness and my behavior. And now what do we use to close that gap? Do we use condemnation? Do we use timeout, punishment? No. How many of you ever had sins you wanted to be set free from? What did Jesus tell you would set you free? The truth really is what sets us free. Here's how this works. I use the truth to get set free from the stuff I've been in bondage to. The truth really is what sets me free. Here's how it works. Okay? I know I'm not good enough to, to be accepted by God based on my behavior. I accept Christ. I am righteous from forever and ever and ever. And then I decide I can believe what is true about the one who saved me and about what he said is best for me in his word. And the more I believe the truth, it's like I get the, I, I get quitting sins for free. Because when I get to know him better and I believe that what he says is true, then when the next time I'm faced with certain temptation, there's something in me that starts to go, I know that's not good for me. Sometimes I will fail anyway, but gradually more and more I'll say, no, 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 I'm going to believe that what God said is actually better than that because I'm beginning to believe the truth that he wants what's best for me. He is not up there, oh, you're going to fail anyway, so what's the use? You just as well get it over with. no even when you fail, the righteousness you bear hasn't, hasn't faded. I believe the truth about my sin. I believe the truth about the, the path of wisdom that he laid out in this book is better. And the more I believe it, the more I'll actually do it. Because if I believe something's better, I will do the thing that's better. When I believe, well what matters is what people see how i'm viewed that got that, that's dangerous the more i believe what he says is true is actually true that's what begins to change my behavior but pastor matt you've got to when you fail you've got to confess absolutely you have to confess and here's the way it works I I begin to see in this model my sin for what it is. It's not that thing that's plunged me into condemnation and hatred from God. What it is was a lie I believed instead of believing the truth. So I take that lie and I go right to the Father who sees Jesus' life eking out of me somehow. And I go right to Him and say, Daddy, I believe this lie. I, want, I believe you. I agree with you. That's what confession is. I believe this lie. This was sin. I know you hate it. I hate it. And he will welcome you because your righteousness in his eyes has not dipped. He will say, I'm so glad you are here. I hate that for you. Will you believe me tomorrow? that what is better is actually better. And he will love you every step of the way. And repentance is just getting back out there and believing what is true. Believing that what he says is best and what he has done for you is enough to make your Father love you in spite of how we are doing in this day. The truth, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. And when you pick up something that, would, that can put you in chains again, you just take those things right to Him I believe the lie, Daddy. Can you help me? And he'll say, absolutely. Because he loves you. Let's pray. Our Father, um, as we prepare to gather around the table, we are, we are here to demonstrate what we trust for our righteousness. It is the broken body of Christ. It is the shed blood of Christ. And our faith in that is what makes us righteous in your eyes. But Father, we want to close that gap. The gap between what is true about us and how we live on a day-to-day basis. Help us begin to see the lies that we believe. Help us to exchange the lies for truth. Paul told us in Romans, our problem is we've exchanged the truth for lies. You help reverse that process. Help us exchange the lies for the truth that your way is better, that it leads to life, that there's real joy that we might glorify you more and more. But the foundation of our righteousness is no longer in the air because it is the white, hot righteousness of Jesus Christ that we bear by faith. As the guys come forward and we pass out the symbol of his body. For those of us here who need to bring some sin before you, to bring some of those lies before you, I pray just in the quietness while Stephanie plays and the bread comes around, that you would lead your child to climb right up on your lap and share with you the lies they've believed, that they might exchange those for the truth, that they might have freedom therein from the closeness they have with you through the blood of Jesus. Hear our lies and overwhelm them with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. when Jesus walked that terrible road to the cross the betrayal by his friends the arrest the beatings the floggings the mocking the rejection by his people the rejection by his father the wrath of God You know why he did all that? For victory over sin for you. Now, do you know, oh Christian, that's what you're walking around in, in this life you live in the flesh? You live, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you live every day in victory over sin. It just isn't always yours. It's always his. I know you hate it when you lose the battle. I know it hurts. It hurts you, it hurts others, it hurts your church, it hurts your friends. I know you hate it when you lose. But listen to me, he didn't. why the life we now live, we live in faith that the one who died and gave himself up up for us did enough for his victory over your sin. Do this in remembrance of him. Father, as, as you've heard us talk to you about the lies that we have believed. Replace that with the truth that what is better is better. And always with the truth that you have won the victory. It was sealed for us the moment we believed. It's a hard truth for us to remember. Since we are so prone to believe lies. As the cup comes around, help us to remember and to celebrate what it represents the victory he won over my sin that I could never win. Amen. After all that you've done, on what grounds could you possibly sit there and think God is okay with you? There's only one. Just remembering, oh yeah, he promised. And that's enough. And I've blown it again. And you've been so, so good to me because I, what I deserve is to be cast out from you but you promised and I choose to believe you will keep your promises that all who call on your name and don't depend on anything else will be saved isn't it good let's remember him together thanks for being here this morning. Go out there this week and believe what he says is best. And when you blow it, go talk to him about the lie you believed. And remember, he's not done with you. Your race isn't over and he'll love you. And so do I. See you next week.